my mind. I was reading my notes, and I, one item I can't read, so I guess we uh, review math or meth. I don't know what a, We did have a little math going on here, and, and I think I'll, I'll put up some of those uh, overheads to uh, review. And, and one particular that we may not, it has given us, a, I believe it's Dr. Thomas's analysis of the 7,000, and even though we feel that he may be mathematically off a few years one way or the other, he does give the scriptures. So if, if any of you didn't, sometimes we slip them up and down before you get a chance that there are some scriptures that support what he thinks are certain numbers. Uh, I wanted to apologize if it was necessary. Early, early in the week we made reference to two or three uh, humorous incidents, and it's not our, uh, our thought that this is uh, a place to, to try to be too humorous, and, and particularly at our uh, meetings on Sunday, I would, I would never do that, uh, but I think at a Bible school we're kind of relaxed a little bit, and I certainly enjoy uh, the camaraderie that we probably have not so much in the assembly, but outside and around. So uh, uh, we're dealing with serious things. There was a fellow I worked for some years ago, Jewish, uh, and uh, one day we were in a conversation. Uh, I think I had inquired maybe what the, how the Jewish community and this fellow, by the way, was the secretary of an Orthodox temple in the Boston area. And uh, I was asking him what they believed as to the afterlife or what was going to come to pass. And uh, he says, well, we, we really don't know, but we feel that if we do good works among men, that uh, if there is anything good that's going to come out of this in the eternal sense that we stand as good a chance of receiving it as anybody else. Now that's foreign to what has been presented here this week. We know that there is a specific outcome that God has rolled this thing out on a 7,000 year scale. It's the kingdom of God to be restored. There are specific details about it. And we know that we only are going to partake of it, not if we do a few good works, but if we believe what these things are, have faith in them, and and adorn that faith uh, or demonstrate it by the good works. So the Jews are not, I don't know that this one man represents the total Jewish philosophy, but Jews, Christendom, or who have you, humanists, uh, have a lot of ideas that maybe my, my personal righteousness or something like that is going to avail me something. But I assure you, as, as have the other talks and presentations here this week done, that such is not the case. I had a question raised, too, on the uh, uh, angels. You know, the idea we presented on the angels was that it's our opinion 
that they are the redeemed from a previous race prior to the uh, Genesis 1 account, uh, what we call the Adamic creation. That's the immortal angels that we read about in the Bible, but in many cases, angels, as we've tried to point out, are mortal or agents, representatives used by God uh, from time to time. In, uh, it's in the, the book of Jude, the, the 26th verse, I believe. No, but there's not that many verses. Sixth verse. Okay, thank you. Yes, that's the angels which kept not their first estate. I didn't make any comment on that. Somebody else did to me. Uh, I know we have several, or, or I don't know several, a couple of writers that have written on this verse, and they feel that these angels who kept not their first estate there referred to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the Old Testament in which they uh, rebelled against God and fire came down and and destroyed them. So they kept not their first presentation, uh, the first habitation. God, I mean, Brother Thomas, I believe, referred to that incident as perhaps pre-Adamic angels that maybe kept not their first estate while they were, let's say, working out their salvation. That, that's somewhat speculative. We don't really know that the angels originated from, from where we suggest they did. And we just presented it because in the beginning, when God created the heaven and the earth, it's very evident in the first chapter of Genesis that the angels, or Elohim, assisted uh, in the work. And in the second chapter of Genesis, where it says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that, the, uh, that there was angelic support. The deity himself is not visible or to be looked upon by human flesh, and therefore he uses agents or others in many instances to perform his work. The revelation of the Bible is done through agents. God employed others to speak exactly what he wanted recorded. So the angels is a very interesting subject, and, and some, as I said, I think have spent an entire uh, Bible school presenting uh, material on this. There's been some things said, and I may have said them too in, in passing this week, that, uh, and we all know, and, we, and, we, and it's a very good thing that we keep this in front of our minds, that we are weak and mortal and, and uh, inferior in many respects, to the, to, certainly to the deity, and uh, and if we criticize others, sometimes, well, psychologically, I think they always, uh, many people, or the psychologists will tell you, that what we're really trying to do is to make ourselves a little more important if we can uh, deflate somebody else. Uh, we have real problems, and then we have individual problems, but I think I would like to say, as I think others would agree, that maybe our first, the primary fault of us as a body is not whether we agree on a prophecy or we agree on this or that or the other, but it's the lack of intake of the Bible. And not just academic intake, but when we say intake, we read it and we take it into our being and we respond. 
So when the Bible says uh, uh, anything of, a, of a, an uplifting nature, faith, we talked of, of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, uh, that's a real question with each one of us. You know, what, what degree of faith do I have? I believe it was Peter that, in one of the uh, accounts of the Gospels, where he's, or probably in Acts, where he says, Lord, increase our faith or my faith. Uh, and I don't think that's something that we can just say, Lord, increase our faith, and sort of stand here and say, well, well, where is it? I mean, has it descended on me in, in some kind of a miraculous way? The only way we're going to increase our faith, at least the primary way, is to start with a regular intake of what God has spoken. This is an inspired book. It's the word of the Almighty. And we wrestle with it. Our, our uh, writers have wrestled with it over the years. In, in many cases, they've left on record for us things that help us. In other cases, they've made mistakes, as I will make uh, in the presentation I have this week. And we have to be patient with each other. And, and the Bible, of course, will tell us that if we have the true uh, love and interest in uh, each other, it will go a long way in helping us uh, correct our primary fault and probably some other faults that follow there. You know, when people get up and speak at a Bible school, uh, one thing is they have a very competent audience. Is the, the person standing up here doesn't always know uh, more than many of those in the audience. And uh, he's probably limited. I think I can always say that sometimes you'll come across a subject or a verse and you say, well, even though it's related, we'll say to the angels, I don't fully understand that, so I'll just skip it. So you always have a sort of an out there, uh, and you don't really cover completely the subject. Uh, and, I, and I feel certainly that I haven't this week, and I, haven't, I certainly haven't wanted to be dogmatic, but I do feel that we will all agree that God has a 7,000-year plan. The premise for that is the seven days of creation, and I believe it's supported by other inferences as we go along through the Bible. But the exact count, uh, so many years from this to that, uh, is open to a little question, and that's why I'm, in a minute I want to show these uh, uh, several of these uh, slides again. It, it hasn't been my purpose to uh, to uh, even. You, you're bound to be involved when you're talking of seven thousand years and certain prophecies fulfilled, perhaps more than than yet to come. Uh, we haven't mentioned the, the 2,300 years of Daniel. I believe it's the 8th chapter. Uh, Brother Thomas, as you might recall, felt that that was 2,400. And there have been other expositors, non-Christadelphian, who felt it was 2,200. I believe the Septuagint, can somebody verify this and say 22 in the Septuagint? Anybody know that? Uh, I, th I think that's what it is. Uh, the original word, and I've, I had it in some notes here somewhere and couldn't place my fingers on it. I don't know what that word is. I believe it starts with an S-H-A in the Hebrew, but that's not much help. Uh, but the 2300 of Daniel 8.14, if I've got the right verse there, let me just turn back. 24, okay. 
did you hear him there? He says the Septuagint is 2,400 and the uh, Alexander is 2,200. Brother Thomas felt that there was validity to the 2,400, and I believe he measured that from uh, approximately the overthrow of Babylon, about 535 B.C., down to the 1860s when he felt Christ would come. So he felt that the fulfillment of this uh, 14th verse, which would the fulfillment is in the cleansing of the sanctuary, and several of our modern-day uh, students have felt that the cleansing of the sanctuary at least began or was affected in, in 1967 when the, the uh, old city was recovered by the Jews, that they, they regained the sanctuary status and the uh, beginning of that 2300 would have been about the uh, inception of the reign of uh, Alexander the Great in about 332 B.C. I wanted to write a little uh, uh, item on the board here. And it's... Uh, Another thing I I think is germane to many of the things, or if not all of the things that we've been talking here this week. Uh, what is it that uh, uh, this is something I've been told? A dozen times, I can never remember it. When they use a word or a, a series of letters to define acronym, that, that's what the A stands for. Maybe no, it isn't. But uh, uh, all right, I'm gonna. This is an acronym. I'm not talking about a book of the Bible, and it's uh, not intended to be a big puzzle. Uh, but it's something that may help each one of us. And it's been mentioned here uh, specifically this week. And uh, I believe it was on Tuesday night when we had our lecture. On the need and benefit of prayer. Now prayer can be, uh, uh, can take several forms. We don't always pray the same thing and for the same thing. And I believe that if we were, if you'll help me identify each of these as elements of our prayers, uh, I think we'll get somewhere. What do you think I mean by A? It was when we pray, and by the way, my philosophy is that in these four words, which these letters represent, uh, that, that there's nothing we can pray for that's not, not encompassed in these four words. Now, you may, st may want to start with any of them. What do you think I mean by any of, any of those four letters? Okay, that's very good. I'll write that in here. When we pray, in many cases, and probably in every prayer, there's, there's a certain amount or degree of thanksgiving. What are, some, what are the other three? And, and these are words that we may use a different word for, you know. Uh, I, somebody might say thanksgiving, another person might say appreciation. But uh, supplication. supplication is the latter. 
or the fourth one. I've just put them in the form so that they would form a little uh, acronym. And uh, and the other two. Ask. That's not what I had in mind. <laughs> and, uh, appeal. That's not what I had in mind. Acknowledge. Well, I'm not saying, you know, that these things are all... The appreciation is close to what I have. What, what goes throughout the Psalms, and it's not one of these letters? When we say hallelujah, what are we saying? Okay, that's what I have in the... Now, what's another word for praise? Every one of our prayers, we may forget, I think, on occasion. Sometimes we're in dire distress, and we probably may spend our entire energies on supplication, which, again, nothing wrong with this. But uh, in the complete uh, prayer, I think we ought to think consider considerably on adoration and praise. And there is another aspect that we hear uh, nearly every time we offer prayers. That's it. That's the, that's the one I had in mind. Now, again, there may be some other word that, that fits that. Now, let me ask you, if we incorporate those four ingredients, uh, can you think of some expression or uh, part of our prayers that don't fit into this category? I can't. I'll, I'll tell you. That's my... Uh, I can't think of a thing that I could pray for or about... That wouldn't uh, represent something in this uh, foursome. And again, even though we, we may use uh, uh, another word for what we've done there. But, but it's absolutely necessary that we recognize, as, as David did in, in many of the Psalms, that uh, praise is due uh, to our Heavenly Father for what, uh, for what reason? Why would, why would we wish to praise or extol the name of our Heavenly Father? Well, He wants us to do that. That's, that's, that's certainly true. Uh, I, I didn't get fully what you Certainly, He is he's certainly deserving of it. Uh, I, I, my, excuse me. So He is the Supreme Being. Uh, Praise waiteth for thee in Zion, unto thee shall all flesh come. Is what just one of the expressions in the psalm. Uh, we, we could quote, I'm sure, or several of you here could quote several verses that would be pertinent to this. Uh, I One of the things that constantly crosses my mind when we praise the Heavenly Father, one is for the presentation of His Word. If we didn't have that, none of us... Well, we'd all be wasting our time here, I'm sure. If we didn't recognize that the Lord had provided His Word for our information, uh, we'd be out in the cold. What else did He provide that, that so uh, ingeniously devised in His plan? His only begotten Son. Without that, that's, that's the primary representation of the Father. Even though, again, in our... 
chronological analysis, the sun didn't appear until 4,000 years had gone by in man's history. But uh, the Old Testament accounts constantly predicted and affirmed that this was the case. Genesis 3.15, we have the promise of the seed of the woman. And again, as we've often said, and we feel it's not bad to keep repeating it, that God, there's no promise of man's salvation to come through seed of man and woman, because man would glory in this, wouldn't he? But the seed of the woman indicates the birth through a virgin, as Isaiah predicted, and as Mary was told, uh, of the proper one of Genesis 3.15 that was to be the Savior of the world. Now, there's many other things that we can uh, praise and extol our Heavenly Father for, and we should not neglect this element in our prayer. And why, why confess? What confession should we make? Well, generally, I think we all realize that, that uh, and we know ourselves to a certain degree, that we, ne we never perform perhaps up to our, our expectations. This doesn't mean that we're, that we're the most wicked people that ever walked the face of the earth, but that we don't uh, rise to the uh, position of servants as well as we would like to. That's, again, this is not to make us better than, than we really are either. But there's always... The idea that we want to improve, that we confess that we don't do all that we should be doing, we don't spend enough time on spiritual things, we would like to spend more, and it's our ambition in order to please our Heavenly Father that we acknowledge before Him that, that these things are so. In the 25th of Matthew, which we referred to two or three times this week, in which our brothers in their prayers quite often say that it's our desire that we will hear those welcome words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. What is said to the other element that is not welcomed into the... Uh, Depart from me, what? Well, I think this is in maybe two of the Gospels. That's correct. Ye, the, ye workers of iniquity. But look at the 25th chapter. Uh, not, that's not what I'm looking for either. <laughs> we're all right. But, we're all right, but we got different answers. Uh, uh, let me, I'll find it here. Just give me a minute. Uh, the 23rd verse uh, uh, congratulates the faithful servant. Uh, 41, let me see. Is it 41? 26, they say. Yeah, somebody's quoted 41. I'm not going to find it, but I'm going to tell you what it says. Uh, Depart from me, ye wicked and slothful servants. And I've often I've thought quite a bit lately that, uh, that even though we, we none of us will own up to being quite that wicked, I suppose, but how many of us plead guilty when it comes to being slothful. In other words, we can, even if we, we sort of sometimes pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I did my daily readings. That's 15 minutes out of the day I've given to the Lord. And that's all I need to do today. I've, I've been a pretty good servant. Well, I don't think that's quite uh, adequate, uh, even though I'm sure there are times when we, uh, we have uh, 
highs and lows when it comes to uh, developing or, or beefing up the spiritual man. But many of us are probably guilty at some time or another of being slothful. What is a sloth? That hangs around. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of us are just hanging around. That's that's. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you can if you look got one of these massive dictionaries where it shows you pictures of fowls and birds and buildings, and you'll see a sloth. He's hanging upside down from a limb. I guess he hangs there all day. He doesn't do anything. And so, so the the adjective has come from the animal saying that, that we are like a sloth, or can be. And the Lord's uh, lack of commendation to us in the final analysis it may well be, thou wicked and slothful servant. I, I can't use your services uh, in the future kingdom. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, he's doing nothing. Or, well, when, of course, we need, we need our rest, but uh, that wasn't my point. <laughs> uh, okay, let me uh, throw a few of these slides back up on here just for refreshing, if anything. We, we showed you this one. Let me get this switch here. Oh, you're right, Roger. So try to remember that uh, acronym of ACTS. By the way, you know, if you, uh, and I, I didn't, I meant to say, these aren't in any order. We don't say, well, now, wait a minute, I can't, uh, I can't make supplication of the Lord until I've made some mention of, of praise or I've confessed my faults, but... Uh, there's another acronym you could make that spells out uh, SCAT, S-C-A-T, but I didn't think that was too appropriate. Uh, these are the ones that are published in uh, Chronicon of Hebrewcon by Brother Thomas, and I just call your attention uh, to, this, to the bottom one particularly. If anybody needs to make any notes, I'll go a little higher there. That here is his support, Genesis, Exodus, Acts, First Kings, and so forth, of where he gets his years. And of course, any time if you have a sketch of this, you can add up down to this point or this point or this point and see how far along in the AM years uh, that we are going. Of course, I want to throw these up here again. I realize I'm not. Anybody need to copy there and, uh, or want me to show it later? These are, the, these are the figures we put up yesterday to add up to our present 5994 as we see it, uh, which would be the year 1991. And we have another approximate six years, if this is correct, one in which we feel the Lord may very well be here in 5995 or 96, depending on how we uh, look at it. And again, I'm, I'm, I feel that we're talking in terms of Jewish dates, that uh, the September-October period of this present year, 1991, could well be the year of our Lord's return. And, I, and again, I probably haven't stated it too clearly, but I, 
I sort of feel that the appearance is going to be in that uh, Yom Kippur season. I know there are others who feel that it may be Pentecost or the spring of the year, and uh, I'm not prepared to argue that point uh, very well. So anybody that needs to make notes from that that didn't get them yesterday might refer to them. And this one is, I'm particularly interested in this. I have a, uh, a little, we didn't say much about it, but the 1656, let me read these off to you. As we have said in the other one is the uh, time of the period to the flood. For some strange reason, Brother Thomas in arranging this diagram, and he calls it A, B, C, D, and says this is a parallelogram, A, B, C, D. He doesn't assign any value to this period of time, I guess we could say, before we start. But he does assign a six-year value to this end. So it's, in one sense, maybe uh, maybe the graphic is not as... Uh, correct as it maybe should be. But the 1656 carries us down to the flood. And the next little 377 that he has in there uh, carries us to the typical confirmation of the covenant with Abraham. And the uh, 430, which is a little loop on the front of that next uh, would-be circle, is... uh, the time of to the Exodus. So actually, if we could draw a line right through that little part there, we would see that the Exodus is at this point. Then the 1695 carries us down to the destruction of the Holy City in 70 A.D. So if you added those four figures together, you would get his time from creation to 70 A.D. And I, I believe it would come out to about 4,089. And then the uh, next 1,796 years carries us, to, in his way of thinking, to the coming of Christ, which would be about 1864. Uh, and we, we've discussed uh, his calculations on that before. Uh, then he assigns that 40-year crescent to the hour of judgment on the nations, which he feels that Christ and the saints will execute before the millennium reign starts. The millennial reign starts. We have a few notes uh, that we'll get to probably tomorrow on uh, talking about that. Then the uh, 1,000, of course, is the millennial reign, and the 6 is the little season of Revelation 20, verses 3, 7, and 8. And a question that we tried to field earlier in the week as to whether that rebellion, I I certainly can't see where anybody would get six years, I don't know, from the scriptures, uh, unless they felt it was uh, the tenure of man or what six might represent in in some way. Uh, I I know that the basic feeling of the non-rebellion thought is that the kingdom uh, progresses through a thousand year period getting better and better the the saints are executing their rulership along with Christ people are going up to the temple year by year they're being educated in spiritual things and and the uh, dross will be uh, purged out and done away with 
and so that finally we uh, evolve or mature into a perfect state without the need of a rebellion at the end of the thousand years. The idea of the rebellion, of course, I think takes only takes its support from the 20th chapter in which the, uh, I believe it says, the camp of the saints are encompassed about and uh, so forth. So that's, that's that for that slide. And uh, I'm going back to this original first page of uh, Times and Seasons. Uh, in fact, we've got one or two people here. We'll do it for their benefit that, that have arrived late. Uh, of the magnitude of this created earth that God is dealing with, of this massive tonnage of six sextillion tons spinning around in space on such an accurate uh, basis that it returns every 365 plus days to the same spot it occupied with a massive tonnage that, that's listed there on that sheet. And it's going at 68,000 miles per hour, as our astronomers tell us. I mean, it's just nearly unthinkable that such a thing could happen, and we can only assign the accuracy and uh, magnitude of this event to a deity that is controlling the affair. So if, if just in a natural sense, if we're thinking of, of how the earth brings forth, and uh, even if, if man were to go on existing for hundreds of thousands of years and everything, the idea of the control behind this is just nearly beyond a person's imagination and comprehension. I believe Brother Chisholm mentioned on Monday night that this earth is at a 23-degree angle on its axis. And I've heard people say that they feel it, that when the new age comes, that perhaps the earth, which is tilted a little bit, will, will be righted straight up and we won't have the uh, uh, severe seasons and the, the severe cold that we have in the high mountains and things like that. That's only a a thought that some have presented. So if you if you think about that, I think it will uh, it will help us. Now here's one slide we haven't shown before, and I don't. It's not. In fact, I really need to. I really need to put it up that way. I think I will, so you can read these Jewish months, uh, starting in here. And again, we have, I think, probably 13 months there. We have the intercalary month, if you know, uh, if you've got all those. This month, Abib, if you look at Exodus 12, uh, as they were to come out of Egypt, the Lord announced that this will be the beginning of months uh, for you. So that's why I'm inclined to feel that the uh, fall season uh, is really our beginning of the year. So uh, uh, W.H. Carter has drawn this chart and made some comments here on the Jubilee years, which, which heretofore in this week we have not commented on. Uh, during our experience, and going, I believe it's on the 25th of Leviticus, where the Jubilee is defined, and there's two or three verses that use the term 50 years, and uh, probably less evidence there maybe in terms of, of printed space of the 49. 
but uh, W.H. Carter goes into some detail to present that this Jubilee year is of necessity a uh, Sabbath, and that after you go seven, 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 you get down to a Jubilee. You go another four sevens, and you get to a Jubilee. So that's always on a 49th year. Otherwise, if the Jubilee was on a 50th year, and we think of our uh, day of rest or our Sabbath always being on what we would call a Saturday, then the first Jubilee might wind up on Sunday, the next one would be Monday, the next one would be Tuesday, the next one would be Thursday, and so forth, Wednesday and Thursday. So uh, uh, your calculations and which he has done, and I believe which several of our brethren in their presentations have, have uh, sort of suggested that there may be a correlation between the Jubilees uh, ending up in about 59.99 or 6,000, which means that on the coming of Christ that the Jews will be released from their uh, spiritual bondage and that they will be uh, given a, a high estimable place in the arrangement of the new age. Uh, I, I may have another another item to show you on uh, on the Jubilees. I'm not going to say I haven't proved anything. I've just, just mentioned a couple of things. Here, here is a list, I believe, of... Uh, now he he uh, calls these sabbatical years, but uh, he says that the first jubilee count started here in 2569 a.m. I forget what that is B.C. Uh, you could use your calculation to find out, and then all these various ones, I've I've added them up to 857. And if you multiply them by seven, it comes up to 5999. I'm not sure it's on this chart, but uh, yes, he does. Get, uh, the last ones that we were we are interested in is perhaps this one, where he says the truth truth is revived in AD 1848, and uh, and we have certainly an evidence in the uh, publication of uh, Alpha's Israel, uh, and I found that. That those who try to fit these jubilees into the to the very last day that we, we again we're missing them by a, a year or two, but the next one would adding 49 years to 1848, we would get 1897 again a very prominent date because the first Zionist Congress uh, opened up the uh, avenue for Jewish immigration and, and uh, uh, the development of Palestine, adding 49 years to that we would come to 1946, and I don't know whether the uh, activity of the uh, nations in, in declaring that Palestine was going to be a home for the Jews, we use 1847 as a better date, so it's not exactly 1947 uh, as a better date, so that would be actually 50 years from 1897. Again, whether one happens in September or October or January might make a little difference. You know, David in the scriptures is very, very plainly given that he reigned seven years and six months in Hebron and uh, 40, uh, 33 years in Jerusalem, which is a total of 40 and a half. And yet we always say David reigned 40 years. And I believe we had a king or two that reigned a few months. And I don't know whether they dropped the six months as being less than a year or add on when you're more than six months, but, but there are little discrepancies that you have to deal with. 
And if, if 1947 or thereabouts was a jubilee year, uh, and we add 49 to that, we'd get about 1996, which fits within reason of, uh, of what we're talking about today, that Christ might come in about ni- uh, uh, 1992, and, uh, and that the su- subsequent four or five years would be employed in the execution of the seventh vial, the pouring out of the seven thunders, and the uh, ultimate beginning of the millennial age. I suppose we could say that uh, we've only got about three or four minutes. What we intend to do to to, uh, conclude this class is to sort of leave you without any more numerical calculations and and spend the uh, next two years on uh, giving you the reasons why we feel that the uh, 40 years projection, and by the way, both of these authors that we're are quoting from, uh, Chronicon Hebricon, Help Us Israel, uh, by Brother Thomas, and Times and Seasons by W.H. Carter, both of them feel that that 40 years is a, is a valid uh, time period in which Christ and the saints will execute judgments, preaching of the everlasting gospel for 10 years and 30 years the hour of judgment of Revelation, uh, which will remedy this earth of, of the problems that it has and usher in the millennial age. Uh, I, I, Brother uh, Thomas, of course, felt that Christ was coming about 1868 and that, that uh, 40 more years would fill out uh, his uh, 6,000 years, starting in 4089 B.C. Brother Carter although using the 4004 creation date, still felt that if Christ came in in the 1960s or 70s, which was the time he was writing, that still up to 1997, we still had room for that 40 years execution. Well, we, fortunately, I believe, have lived to 1991, and we've seen that that what he predicted uh, doesn't seem to uh, be correct. And I, I want to show the reasons why I think that uh, they're not. The chief argument of Brother Thomas is in Micah 7.15. I would say he uses this, I'm going to say, at least ten times in the writings of, of the uh, three volumes of Eureka. I like to say five volumes because since the later publication we have five separate books. But he constantly goes back to this Micah 7.15 which says, like as to the days of the coming out of Egypt, uh, certain, certain things will happen. And another thing I've always had a little distaste for, I've got the, I've got the photograph here from Alpha's Israel. I believe, uh, I believe it's page 449. Yeah, here it is. 449, if you want to make a note of that, in Alpha's Israel. And remember, he was writing this about 1848 or 9. And one of the remarkable things about about Elpis Israel is that Brother Thomas was emerging from Campbellism, and I believe he had gone to England, I guess in 1848, and delivered a, a lot of lectures to the people there. And he was a little bit abrasive to the general Campbellite public. And some of them supported his work there, and some didn't. I think he was saying things that were more 
Israelitish and kingdom of God than they wanted to hear. But but uh, the group that sympathized with him, which I guess we might call emerging Campbellites, uh, urged him, based on his lectures there, to publish this book, Help Us Israel. And he sat down, and I believe, if uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, it was in four months, and he said something about his time was spent I think he was writing maybe in his upstairs bedroom that kitchen and bedroom, kitchen and bedroom, that was that was his total life for these these four maybe this connection down here. Oh. something there. Where was I? In these four months which I, I've often said takes us longer than that to read it. And, and he wrote this thing, and, uh, and the massive, massive intelligentsia that's in that volume is, is just nearly beyond uh, belief. But, but we glean these little gems here and there in the next place, and it's been a great help uh, to the Christadelphian body. But on this, uh, I've got about a minute. I'll take a minute. Uh, 449, he says... And, and when you pick up at a paragraph, you've missed what's gone before. He's been talking about the latter days. He says, This belligerent state of things between the king of Israel and the nations of Gog's dominion, style the goats, and we're going to talk on that too, will continue for 40 years. And I said one of the things that I've always had a distaste for is for one of these later writers or publishers to come in and on the bottom of the page they say, Here's a better explanation. I, I know they don't really say I know more than the writer, but many times it's a case that, that history has unfolded and certain things have come to pass, so they make a footnote. And this writer, which I would assume was C.C. Walker, says, Micah 7.15 is taken to indicate this period, but the prophet, Micah, I assume he's talking about, does not say according to the number of the days, but simply... As in the days, the allusion is to the characteristic wonders of those days rather than to their duration. Compare this parallel with several other scriptures that he gives here, which I think we'll make reference to later. And I believe uh, W.H. Carter, in Times and Seasons, uh, gives you his comments on it. So we'll try to talk about those tomorrow. Here's one opportunity as comes around every once in a while to uh, speak of our other classes, which I enjoyed. Uh, four or five years ago, there was a one of the Bible schools, which I think they have often. It occurs often that uh, some of the teachers cancel out and they got to get replacements or. <coughs> Something like that, and uh, this this brother they asked to, to uh, take somebody's place. He said, "Well, I'll come, provided you put me on after somebody else." Because he knew this other brother had a penchant for reviewing everything he'd said. So, so uh, I could have done that, or, or probably not very well on. on I was following Ian, but I, I, I sort of observed this this year, even though there was sort of a correlation.
between the classes, as there probably always is. We're all speaking the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, but there was a lot of, lot of reference to this one said that and this one said something else. Not only are we, in, I think, uh, we're talking to intelligent believers who have a number of years of background in the truth, and they can, uh, they're critical of what we say in, in two senses. I, I think they examine it very carefully. And sometimes people are, uh, are critical, and, and perhaps the ones up, up here deserve some criticism, because people will always say, well, I didn't get what he was talking about, or I, I didn't uh, uh, concur maybe with everything he said. But I think all in all, I, uh, I sure appreciate the Bible schools. There's another thing that was uh, it's just been well, it was mentioned yesterday at the baptism, and it's mentioned in uh, the previous class, I believe. There hasn't been a lot said, maybe it doesn't need to be said, on the uh, unamended statement of faith. But uh, the Bible school made it clear that that was their basis of fellowship, and they, they believe these things. And uh, as most of us are very familiar, the primary difference in the unamended statement and the amended statement has to do with, I think I would, I'm safe in saying this, it's a compulsory resurrection, as the amended teach it, of those who know enough to qualify baptism being excluded and carried to its logical end no person according to that theory and that's all it is in my mind is a theory is uh, baptized for the right purpose and that is to remove Adamic condemnation and to place us out of Adam and into Christ and that's a doctrine that we had better dearly hold on to. I don't want to make uh, uh, Steve Metzer uh, <laughs> I just want to, I want to say something. I'm trying to think of the date, but I believe it might have been about. Uh, let me let me think just a minute. It's about I'm going to say 1935 to 36. Uh, Mr. Kaufman, who would what would, he would be Steve's uh, grandfather-in-law, something like that, or Teddy's grandfather. Uh, and Sister Kaufman at the time, it was because uh, I've always known him as Mr. Kaufman because he's baptized rather late in life, and uh, I really never knew him as Brother Kaufman. It was always Mr. Kaufman. But they moved in uh, about that time, in, in about 1936, and with our family. People weren't uh, too well off. We weren't. 
and they weren't. So we uh, lived in the same house, and uh, I, I was I could have been maybe 12 years old. And uh, one thing I remember is, uh, I guess living in the same house, you had a uh, we had a common living room. So uh, I can remember Mr. Kaufman making a beeline for the radio, and he wanted to hear. Uh, Lum and Abner, I believe it was, or, or Amos and Andy, one of, one of those two. And at 12 years old, we didn't have any interest in that. We wanted to hear something else. And, but he beat us to the radio. <laughs> and, uh, and later on in life, uh, a great many of us remember, uh, Brother Dunaway had such a great appeal to people that people who never came out in the Christadelphian community would come out to hear Brother Dunaway. They wouldn't come to hear anybody else because Brother Dunaway had a real knack for creating this interest. And Mr. Kaufman, I'll call him, uh, I can remember particularly at Martinville, he would come up uh, and invariably, as, as we do here, the talks would involve the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And he was a, he was a Jew from the Old school, I guess, he had the, we, we call them Coke bottom glasses, you know, very, very thick. And he looked Jewish as much as anybody could. And uh, he used to say, uh, every time I come around the Christadelphians, he says, they make me feel like Exhibit 1. You may have wondered, and I hope you did. Well, we, we've—I uh, hope you don't think we've varied from our subject, but it wasn't our intent to keep this thing so numerical or chronological in saying God's seven thousand-year plan. But uh, we wanted to work into this the idea again of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, salvation. That, that we're all working for, uh, and we just, it was our choice not to mention too many numbers and have people adding up too many figures, and we're going to throw on this uh, slide again on what we said yesterday about prayer, because the way we're going to get into the kingdom is going to involve this. It's not this only, but this is one of the ingredients that we've all got to think very seriously about. And again, I don't have any, uh, as I say, I, I didn't mention it, I think, enough yesterday that there's any sequence here that, that we're not required to, to work something out in our communications with God in this order. But I do think that these ingredients should be considered in, in many of our prayers. Uh, some of us may give, I think it's a human inclination for us to give more attention to supplication. We need help and we want help and we know where to ask for help. And uh, I don't think we're uh, remiss in offering thanks, realizing that we have received some help. Uh, I, I suppose generally our confessions, I can speak personally, are perhaps minimal, and when which, which we say, Forgive us all of our sins. We confess that we do 
fail to measure up to what we should. And we ask God to forgive our sins. Whether some of us here, every one of us could give a, probably a very good account of uh, our personal prayers. They are rather personal. And sometimes we don't discuss them fully with our neighbors. But uh, it's something that uh, has to be supplemental to our faith in God and His plan and purpose. Uh, I don't know how many of you have thought, and I, don't, I hope this is not uh, too much out of order, but uh, I've, I've thought and I do think from time to time that the deity is in heaven. He never sleeps or slumbers. Uh, he's been there as far as the Adamic race is concerned for about 6,000 years. Uh, people can pray to him at midnight at three in the morning, at six in the morning, different sides of the earth, hundreds of prayers going up at one time, and he sorts these out and is uh, conscious and hears the believers who call upon him. It's, uh, it's rather somewhat incomprehensible, but uh, the... Uh, it, I guess we could say it only points out, as we have tried to on some other points, uh, to tell us that we are really dealing uh, with a live creator who has formed this plan of the ages, which is about, in our mind, to culminate in a very, very short period of time, and that uh, it's just totally real. And I hope we feel that way. Uh, I think I want to, uh, I'll just cut that off. I just put it there for review. Uh, just for just a minute, I'm just going to draw a line here to represent the 7,000-year plan. Are we all right there? We're starting at zero. Uh, and we haven't made, uh, if we went down a thousand years, we'd come about to the time of Noah, or the flood, and the second thousand years about to Abraham, the third to David, then to Christ, and actually I don't know what happened a thousand years after Christ, whether it was the Saracens or the Crusades or some historical period, and then right here we're going to end in the uh, 6,000. That'll measure out. One, two, three, four, five, six. Of course, I guess we could say we'll go on out here to the end of the millennium. But what we're really concerned about right now is this very short period of time right in here. Uh, and if we do, if we enlarge our, I don't know what they call it in their graphics, some people will say, like in a road map, they'll say, here's the state of New Mexico. And we'll draw you a little uh, small of Albuquerque or something. But uh, if we were talking here maybe of a period of, uh, we'll say, the last 200 years, we would start about 1790 in the French Revolution, and we're down to 1990 or 91 here, that a great, it seems to us probably, I don't know whether it's because it's current, and I don't much think that's the case, that there's so much history that's been packed in the end of these 2,000 years, 200 years, that uh, it seems to sort of eclipse 
many of the uh, uh, times that have gone on before us. And, of course, we are very interested in this very short period of time right in here. Uh, whether we start at 1917, 1947, 48, and some of the other uh, events that have brought us down to 1991, again, it shows that deity is working, that he's very real, and that we have a real interest and part in it. So uh, it's, it's very difficult for me to perceive of somebody else, and I don't know all the religious philosophies, but for them to say, well... Man's going to gradually get better. The earth or the world is going to be a little better 10 years from now, and 20 and 30, and, and something better is going to come. And, of course, we've always got a good uh, retort to that in which we said, well, what evidence do we have in the past that it's ever gotten any better? Uh, all of us in our experiences say, look, I've lived a certain number of years, and it's really been going downhill, downhill, downhill uh, for a great number of years. And if we look at the morality in, the, in the, not only the, this country but, but worldwide, we see that if we could measure it and determine it, it is worse every year. And I think this is a signal and a sign that we are working according to God's plan. Do we have evidence in the Scripture that things are going to get better in, in terms of, of uh, human efforts or governments or, or uh, churches or what have you. I think quite the contrary, as it was in the days of Noah, and they, I don't see how they could have been much worse if God is, I don't, again, we don't know the quantity, but uh, several hundred thousand, if not millions of people, were destroyed and eight saved. That would scare us today if we thought that only that percentage of us as Christadelphians were going to be saved. But we have to be realistic. We have an opportunity to be one of the saved, and we have the liability that we may not be saved. And it's up to us to, to give heed to the things that we've heard, lest at any time we let them slip. I had planned, and I think I said yesterday, that I was going to cover a couple of more points. Again, I'm, I'm, I have to say right now, maybe, maybe I will and maybe I won't. Uh, I want to turn and read from, from uh, Peter. I've got, got two references here. I think I'll, I'll just maybe read one. Second Peter 3.11. And after we mentioned this, maybe in our... I'm sorry, I have the wrong reference. No, I'm in First Peter. Uh, I think we mentioned this the first day. That seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, and again, that has reference to time. And we're at the very dissolving point, if you will. But they're going to be dissolved. Then what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation 
and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And we're not talking about deathbed repentance, in which we've uh, lived a, a bad life, in which it's suddenly time for us to act as if we're, we're different or we're better than we, than we used to be or wanted to be, although that has some merit. Uh, if we need to repent of a certain practice or, or way of life, now is the time to do it. Yesterday was the time. And certainly we don't want to wait till a year from now or two years from now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day for us to think about these things seriously and to uh, act accordingly. I've got several verses that uh, have to do with our conversation. I'm not sure uh, when it says what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation. We might ask the question, what is holy conversation. Uh, if I were to try to answer that, and I haven't given a great deal of preparation of thought to it, uh, I, would, I would say it's not exactly everything that comes forth or we utter from our mouth. However, we do want to be careful that the, that the things that proceed from our mouth, and as the scriptures tell us, they start in the heart or the brain, and uh, they proceed from there. So if we have thoughts that are, are, are we're a spiritually minded person, then it's likely that our conversation will be accordingly. Now this doesn't mean that we have to talk all day long on, on some scriptural subject, but that, uh, that our general deportment and what is in our heart and our manner of overall being should be of a holy conversation type of thing. I asked the question a couple of, uh, some years ago, we had a class in Arkansas uh, for people to define what it means by being spiritual. And I'm not sure I have a definition. In fact, I think there are several angles of being spiritual. I imagine one of the things that all of us would recognize, which maybe doesn't have a great deal to do with, with our uh, uh, moral considerations is a mother and a child. Wouldn't you say that there was a spiritual bond between a mother and a child? There's something more than physical there. And there's a spiritual bond between a husband and a wife. Or there's a spiritual bond between a brother and a brother. Uh, and there is a spiritual uh, uh, awakening or realism in a person when he relates to God. And we would like to say and hope that, that in our ambitions, that this probably would, would exceed or excel in all of the other areas. That I would love God and His Word and His instructions to me more than any human being, be he brother or alien or what have you, and that this would come first in our lives. Uh, we can't lay our hands on it and, and feel it and describe it in that sense that, that we can write it out as maybe a, a strict definition. But to, to me, to be spiritually minded is life and peace, according to the scriptures. And uh, there are some things that, that we're told are spiritually discerned. That means that somebody without 
the instructions of God, would have a hard time figuring out what he was saying. The essentials of the kingdom of God, as we've heard here this week, are spiritually discerned. And Christendom and all of these Gnosticisms and things that have been talked about can't discern it. They've chosen humanism or some other philosophy to place in, in the forefront of the uh, practical and sensible word of God. Let's read a couple of more verses on our conversation. And I believe, as I said, my, my opinion is that conversation involves more than, than just speaking a few words. 1 Peter 1.15 But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And, and we say, as, as many of the others say, sometimes when we read a single verse, the, the verses preceding this and going after it sometimes help uh, complete the thought. In the interest of time, we're reading probably single verses. I'm going now to, to Psalms, and the 37th Psalm, which has a great deal of divine instruction in there, says in verse 14, The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Now this may have been David's experience, and I think it, 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 uh, it's on record in the scriptures that, that many righteous men suffered at the hands of enemies. Whether our enemy today is going to slay us with a sword or whether he's going to slay us with something else, uh, we, we still have to be on our guard. And if, if our upright conversation causes us the uh, opposition of others, then again we have a choice to make. Are we going to hold to our beliefs and our uh, conduct, or are we going to fear those who threaten us? Psalm 50 and 23. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Again, having uh, instruction here that the ordering of our conversation aright will result in salvation, which is what we are seeking. And in uh, Ephesians, the second chapter, You remember this, I don't know whether we all have, I think we all have some favorite chapters. I, I don't have a chapter in the Bible, I say that that's my favorite, but uh, there are some exceptionally clear and informative chapters I think that all of us lead to. In the second chapter of Ephesians where Paul is informing the believers in Ephesus of, of their legal condemnation in Adam, as he does in verse 12. He describes their, their condition or position uh, formally, that is, prior to baptism. 
Maybe I'll read the first three verses. And you hath he quickened, or made alive, by the act of baptism, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So prior to perceiving and, and allying ourselves with spiritual things, we had a fleshly appetite and a fleshly mind. And we, our conversation was such that it was not a holy conversation. Philippians 1.27. I don't know who it was that told me, but those, uh, a lot of times somebody would say, look up uh, Nahum, and I said, you'll turn to a certain book and say, is it before this or after this? And you start reciting the books of the Bible. That one way to remember the uh, letters uh, after Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, is to remember the little acronym, or is it an acronym, or the, get each place correctly. So that's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So now we're in the, that's not exactly an acronym. Philippians 127. 127. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I think we all know that that's very difficult. Uh, maybe our fault, it may be somebody else's fault, but when, to, to get everybody to sort of agree and, and work and strive together is a most difficult problem. I went one time to a, uh, a meeting, I guess they call it kind of a motivational meeting that they try to, uh, they try to get you to be motivated to uh, to go back to your place of business and motivate everybody else, I guess, or, or get along, which, which is, I guess, I guess, what we call motivation. And the speaker at this uh, meeting, uh, I don't know whether it was part of a, a tactic, but they, they dashed out in the audience. They had their portable microphone with them, and they, uh, they asked this person, said, well, now, at your place of business, uh, what, what's your major problem? Uh, is it because the air conditioning isn't working or you don't have enough parking spaces or, or just, just what is the major problem where you work? And they were trying to elicit, and maybe I'm doing the same thing, but the, but the general problem in everybody's place of work was the people. This person aggravates me. He, he doesn't cooperate with me. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. Of course, that's on a on a level that we're not primarily interested in, but, but spiritually we uh, should strive to, as this verse says here, by our conversation, if it's according to the gospel of Christ, that, that's the uh, ingredient we've got to stick with, uh, that we will be able to stand fast 
and to strive together and to help each other. We're not trying to be one just so we'll be sociable and like each other. It's because we've got a hope that's high above any of our personal ways or, or ambitions or thoughts. Also, Philippians 3.20. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may have a marginal definition of what that word conversation means there. What is it? got a lot of different margins. <laughs> what, uh, conduct? conduct? Is that, you have a margin that says that? Well, I, I can't dispute the margin. That's, if they printed it, they're smarter than I am. But uh, That's not the word I've got. <laughs> I, I, some, somebody said citizenship. Is that what you were saying? Well, Linda. Commonwealth. That's the word I've got, but again... Uh, probably if we go back to the original word and trace it, when we say our conversation is in heaven, perhaps we could stay with that word conversation and say, well, if we have high and holy thoughts and our words emanate from our hearts and our minds, and heart in the Bible is not this area of the body that pumps your blood. The heart is the seat of affections or the mind. The two words are interchangeable. So uh, in this case... Uh, our conversation being in heaven, our, uh, maybe it is conduct. I'll, I'll, I'll accept other ideas. But the basic one I had was that our commonwealth, and when we go back to the second chapter of Ephesians again, prior to our baptism, we are told that we don't have any association with the commonwealth of Israel. No association with the covenants of promise. Have no hope and without God in the world. So once we're baptized, here we can say that we do have this commonwealth or, as the word is placed here, conversation. One more is in Hebrews 13.5. Yes. Yeah, Commonwealth seems to fit that. Brother Thomas, I believe, quite often used the word polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y, which means politics. Or uh, There's nothing wrong with the word of politics. We use it most of the time in a sort of a infamous way. Uh, we, we don't have a great deal of confidence in the politicians that, that are doing things maybe that, that don't agree with our thoughts. And then we say a lot of times about a person that we may not care too much for. Well, he's just playing politics, which means he's, he's losing sight of the real uh, matters that we, we should be uh, coming to grips with. But polity, our commonwealth, I think is a, is a good uh, expression there. Now, Hebrews 13.5 will be the last reference we'll read on this. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So again, the conversation or 
it probably, as I said, it spreads a great deal further than just just a word or two or a sentence or two that we may talk about. But our general deportment, and, and I think all of us can can recognize this. Uh, there's another little incident. I, remember, I wasn't personally acquainted with this, but uh, a couple of other brothers uh, said they had, had gone down to visit this brother uh, at the hospital. And uh, presumably we go to the hospital to to cheer somebody up. They're kind of depressed maybe that they've been sick or operated on or something. And they said every time they went, they were more benefited from the uh, conversation from this brother than they took to him. So uh, he had, it would appear, the uh, whatever we mean by conversation. He had within him the principles of the truth that, that just lived alive in him, and he was able to communicate these things, and did so from a maybe a very sick position. I know another instance of a, when we think of, a, we've mentioned, I think, earlier in this week, about, we, we mentioned a day or two ago about probably our greatest uh, fault is, is the lack of reading. And uh, we could have carried that a little further and said, you know, there's a great difference in reading and studying. Uh, I'm guilty of reading. I do the daily readings. And uh, many times, I don't, I don't think I hurry intentionally necessarily, but I don't grasp or study or, or get all I could out of that. Of course, that's the idea of, of repeating. We, we read them year after year after year, and we, we see things after 30 or 40 years of reading that we didn't see 30 years ago, and yet we're reading the same verse or same chapter. But there is a difference. I think if we do something like daily readings, that uh, there still has to be a supplemental effort on our part to say, I'm going and dissect this chapter or this book or whatever it is involved. You know, you can take a book like, uh, I think one of the brothers says here, he's been studying the book of Joel, which is only three chapters. It doesn't take you but 15 minutes to read it. But how long does it take you to study it and to get what, what the message is there and to understand it? So we should constantly strive to not only read, but to study and understand and pray to the Lord that we will increase in understanding and wisdom. Well, there's a great deal more we could say. I was very pleased. I had planned, and I'm not going to do it, uh, to mention two other subjects involved. They're really not greatly involved in the uh, final days that we're living in. And I, I think I probably should, should state that these have just been a matter of uh, debate or disagreement, maybe where, where we live, uh, involving the 40 years uh, that, that both Brother Thomas and, and, and uh, Brother Carter record in their writings. I just don't think in 1991 we've got 40 years left. And Brother Thomas repeatedly, when he pro projects this 40 years, says it's before the millennium. And when we've argued with different ones in our area that, that we, they insist on 40 years, I, I say to them, I says, well, you're telling me that the millennium is going to start in 2031 or 2025 or some, some long future date. And uh, 
was I don't win the argument. I just, just say my piece. Uh, and the other one was on the sheep and goat nations. If you'll look at that 25th chapter of Matthew, let me do, I will say one thing about it, not to win the argument, but, but the uh, ones who are uh, accepted, I'll ask this as a question. Why are they accepted? If you want to turn over there, I may, I may just spend a minute there. Matthew 25. You know, the argument starts in about, uh, let me find it here. Is it about the 31st verse? Yeah, 31st and 32nd. It says that the Son of Man is coming in verse 31. And what happens? His holy angels are with him. Uh, I, I assume that some people might say that's the saints, and other people might say it's the immortal angels. I'm inclined to think it's the immortal angels. Uh, before him shall be gathered all nations. Now, now, this is where the theory of the sheep and goat nations begins. Uh, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth sheep from the goats. Now, the sheep from the goats is a, uh, in the English language, is a, uh, a simile. In other words, whatever division is taking place in verse 32 is similar to a man separating sheep and goats. We, sheep and goats. We could say it could be similar to separating cows from horses, or from some other uh, separating choice. And I think it's significant in this in this uh, chapter that sheep and goats are both clean animals under the law of Moses, and this suggests perhaps that that it is the judgment seat of Christ. That Christ is taking clean people who have been baptized and justified by, by their faith in the, in the baptismal waters. And ultimately, when judgment time comes, he's saying the sheep are the good acceptables to go to the right, and the goats are the unacceptable, the rambunctious animal goes to the left. But, but the application has been made that these are nations. And, and I've got the papers here. I'm not going to read them. Brother Thomas names these nations, and he adds, I think, three more that he thinks are going to be uh, incorporated into the uh, country of Germany. Uh, but, but forget all the arguments and go on down to the, uh, well, the reason for the acceptance of these people is that they have administered unto Christ. I'm, I'm hunting for the verse here right now. Uh, Well, really, really, it's several, several verses in there. But uh, he says to them in verse 34 on his right hand, this is the, the sheep element, I'll call them. Uh, but, but they don't have to be sheep element. It's they are as a shepherd separating his uh, sheep and goats. He says unto them, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It was very difficult for me to say that, to see or visualize that Christ is going out to a nation such as Italy or Germany or France or United States and saying to that group, nations, I, I would assume that means all the population of that nation. It doesn't say that there's any half of the French or half of the Germans or something else. These people are saying, enter into the kingdom. And, and here's the reason. 
I was hungered, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was stranger, and you took me in. Now, now if here's my argument. If the uh, if this is Christ and the saints going out to uh, debate or do whatever they do, seg- segregate in the nations, how can these nations administer good to the saints? There aren't any saints around. Uh, you know, hungry saints and thirsty saints and, and people that are, that are in need. Uh, so these, uh, the credit going to these people at judgment, he's saying in the past, when you lived your probationary life, you were kind to each and every saint or, or many of them. You were kind when they were thirsty. You, you saw their needs and you ministered to them, both naturally and spiritually. So it's a long argument, but uh, something to think about. Uh, I was very pleased with, with the way uh, Brother Ian conducted his class. He ran from a uh, sort of a geographical or physical aspect of Jerusalem on up into the, to the latter days and the prophetic thing of what this, what this city of Zion means to us all. And my thoughts or exhortation would be at, at the same time for us to watch the Middle East, when we're down to this very last hour, which I think we are, that's my argument anyway, that we've been 4,004 B.C. on down to 1991. We're about 5,994 years progressed forward. There's very very few years left. And we're, we need to watch, which we most of us do, I think, very carefully, the events in the Middle East and in Russia and the papacy. And if I, what small observation I might have is that they were all keenly interested, and we, we catch our news and and uh, all about the Middle East, and we're all guessing what's going to happen next, left or right. But I think that there's possibly, and again, this is individual, that we may not be observing as much about the papacy. Maybe the papers don't give it as much coverage, but the Pope is going about gaining support and momentum, and he's unifying uh, countries that were formerly in the Roman Empire and all, and he's got a great role to play. The whole book of Revelation, he's the prominent villain in the book of Revelation. It's this papal system, and uh, I guess in one way, I I think I I have said, and I I hope you understand what I mean, is that Russia... or or any political enemy, is of less consequence than the papal. Because the papal has said, in so many words, I am God, or I am Christ. I'm in the stead of God. If you want to be saved or something like that, look to me. And this, of course, is very obnoxious to the deity and very blasphemous and insulting. So we ask the question, as uh, I believe it's recorded in Luke, when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, that's up to us individually and, and somewhat collectively. Uh, the word faith there is from the uh, Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. Will he find faith? And the word means faithfulness. A lot of people have said, will he find the faith? That is, will he go to this ecclesia or that ecclesia or that group of people 
and find the faith. But I, I'm inclined to think it means, will he find faithfulness, adherence to his laws, commandments, and you and you and you, or me? So that question can only be answered by us. We don't know, but we know we can strive, and that our uh, ultimate purpose is to not be among the wicked and slothful, but to be among those where he does find faithfulness.